welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome in. This is the Thursday deep dive episode with Ian Gray on the line with me and Ryan, as always. Um, today, we're actually going to be remote. This will be the last one. So if it sounds different, and if you're watching on YouTube, apologies uh, for the few people that do that. We have a weird setup. The mic's blocking my face. It's a whole thing. Kind of funny <laughs> if you if you want to watch that. But yeah, should be back in person after this episode. But we're talking Jumia today. This was Ian's pick. Um, I'll let Ryan introduce it. But Ian, is this something you followed a long time uh, or just kind of something that piqued your interest? Uh, followed for probably about six months. Um, have just a tiny little starter position in it just to kind of keep an eye on it. But um, something I think, you know, I'm interested in the African opportunity and we'll dive into it today, I'm sure. Yeah. And then Ryan, you want to talk about what the company does, but first, do you want to mention our partners at 7investing? Yeah. So 7investing, uh, as Brett just mentioned, are our partners. Uh, they just had new recs come out. Um, and I think you said last time that you like Max is the best. Yeah. But there's interesting ones too. Um, for, you know, there's stuff for each type of investor. I mean, there was a healthcare one from Dana their newest uh, advisor. And then Simon had an interesting one, not in the software market like he typically plays, but it was fascinating as well. Matt, Dan, as always, kind of the stalwarts, steady names uh, that we know and love them for. But yeah, overall, great picks. Yeah, I think we're going to have Honor Bond on the show this week too. So we'll kind of get uh, on the podcast, not if you're listening on YouTube or watching on YouTube, but uh, we'll, we'll kind of get insight into the way he thinks. Um, but if you want to go check out the Rex, use code CCM. You get ten dollars off at checkout. It's only seven dollars for the first month, so pretty good gig. But I'm gonna get into Jumia. So Jumia is the leading African e-commerce company. Um, there are essentially three big parts to their business, and they have there are like other businesses under these three parts where it's like one of those companies that's trying to do a super app thing where they just put Jumia in front of every possible like yes. part of their business. Yeah. Um, so, but the, the primary thing that they have is the marketplace, which is where buyers can get typical goods. So apparel, uh, food, any, uh, think of it sort of like an Amazon. Uh, and it comes from third-party sellers, or there's a little bit that's Jumia themselves or first-party orders, but it's mostly third-party. Um, and then they have a logistic service, which is enabling the delivery of goods from sellers to buyers, exactly what you might think it is. And then they have Jumia Pay, which facilitates transactions on its platform. It also does that sort of through partners. Um, but previously, some of the transactions were being settled at uh, sort of at delivery with cash. Um, and so obviously, you can think of what could go wrong there. Uh, and so the goal of Jumia Pay is to basically replace that and make sure that the transaction is done at the time of the order. 
Um, but they operate in three different regions of Africa, which consist of 11 different countries. They have operations in West Africa, so Ghana, Ivory Coast, Nigeria, and Senegal, and then North Africa, so Algeria, Egypt, Morocco, and Tunisia. And then they have some in South and East Africa, so Kenya, South Africa, and Uganda. But most of their business comes from the West Africa segment, and they're actually closing down some of the markets that they they used to be in 14, I think. Um Rwanda was one, Cameroon was one, and they there's another one, but they uh, Tanzania would be the other one. So they left those three, um, but that's the basics of how their platform works. Kind of like it's more like your traditional e-commerce marketplace, but obviously there are sort of logistics hurdles. Being that it's in Africa, they don't quite have the same infrastructure or, or uh, system like road system that kind of thing. Um, so just keep that in mind. And then as far as history goes, they were co-founded in 2012 by, I'm going to get these names wrong, so I apologize, uh, Sasha Pognonek <laughs> and Jeremy Hodara. Um, the company started with its operations in Nigeria and Pakistan and received backing from a German internet investment group called Rocket Internet. That was the, It was an undisclosed amount. And then Ian, I think, is going to mention this, but they were both found. Uh, both the founders were originally from McKinsey, and they specialized in retail, packaging, and e-commerce while they were there. And so, obviously, you can kind of draw the line to them trying to start their own e-commerce firm. Um, and I believe the two people, the two founders, are French. Uh, and the company actually went public in April of 2019. It's been a really strange ride for the stock, um, but they're headquartered in Germany. They have warehouses all over Africa. Um, and they have more than 4,000 full-time employees now. So that's a little bit about the uh, history, I guess. Yeah, you were right. The stock is volatile, uh, saying that might be an understatement, but I'll hit the industry and competition quick. Uh, Their industry is tough to say. Don't really have any numbers on them, but Africa is obviously a large continent with over a billion people currently, and they're expected to have over 1 billion internet users in the near future. So that's kind of their total market opportunity, obviously a lot lower than their current you know, penetration right now. And there's not really any exact numbers on retail selling opportunity, but again, they're going after the entire African market. They're really going for it all. So it's not, there's no worries here about not enough opportunity for them. It's really about them executing and building out all their products. Um, retail competitors, uh, there's some local ones that can include Conga, Super Ballast, Take A Lot. And then there's a Middle Eastern one that operates in Egypt as well called, um, I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's S-O-U-Q and it's owned by Amazon. And then, you know, there's also the threat of, you know, Amazon or Alibaba or someone like that coming to Africa as well. Uh, they have food delivery, which they compete with Glovo and Uber Eats is there as well. And then payments, there's Paystack, which is, I think, either got bought out or got an investment from Stripe. And then there's Opay and Palm Pay as well. Um, still, you know, early days, though, and I wouldn't really worry or I'd argue it's really all about execution for Jamia. Not at this point. I mean, there, there can be a lot of winners in all these industries. I don't think focusing on the competition unless they really start doing well, it is not something you you know, you want to do here. Yeah. And I would also add sort of like a macro number there. When you think about, obviously Amazon's a bit of an anomaly, but when you think about e-commerce sort of profitability, usually you think about population density and how you want a lot of people closer to one another. So then you're spending more time delivering, less time driving. Uh, but 
they aren't super dense. I, I saw a number. I mean, we looked at Coupon recently, uh, and a lot of those people live in cities. Most of the population does, and they live in really close proximity to one another. Africa, I saw an estimate that said by 2050, they expect like 60% of the population to be to live within urban areas. Yeah. Um, Ignore that, honestly. I mean, they gave out those in the F20, which is like their 10K. Well, I yeah. mean, that's so yes. far away. It's just. Yeah, it was. I mean, uh, seems like a really irrelevant estimation, but the, the the thing to take away there is that they aren't there yet. And that yeah. is how far they are from it. So you, you, when you look at like the total population of the continent, I would not just if you're if you're estimating based on TAM, it's going to look like <laughs> a great company. I, yeah. I think there's nuance to it and pay attention to sort of the the hurdles, if you will. Yeah. All right. Ian, do you want to talk management and ownership? Yep. As Ryan mentioned, Jeremy Hodara and uh, Sasha Poinanek are the co-founders and co-CEOs, which is kind of an interesting um, setup. I know (laughs) I generally am not a huge fan of the co-CEO thing because it hasn't seemed to work well for many companies, but um, we'll see what happens here. They were co-founders and I'm sure both coming from McKinsey um, wanted that title and stuff like that. But um, as Ryan mentioned, they they both worked previously at McKinsey and like uh, consumer packaged goods and retail and e-commerce and things like that. So for those of you who don't know, McKinsey is a major consulting firm. So they have kind of that, um, don't want to call it Wall Street experience, but that consulting experience and um, which some people see as a positive, some people see as a negative. They probably understand business very well, but some people think of uh, consultants not having a whole lot of operating experience or a lot of know-how about how to actually execute and get things done. But um, it doesn't, it's not a red flag to me. It shows that they're um, hard workers. um, And, you know, who knows, who knows what happens, but I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a big uh, influence one way or the other. They don't show any ownership of shares on um, like a lot of the major financial uh, data aggregators. But each owns options worth about 1.2% of the company, according to my calculations. So they have a healthy stake, not a crazy um, high stake in this company, but a a good size stake in it. Uh, It seems to me like the comp may be a little bit high, the compensation. They've been making millions of dollars the last couple of years. And for a company that's losing uh, millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars, so uh, a little bit concerning. Again, not a not a crazy red flag, but it's it's something to be aware of. They have been taking pay cuts recently, which is good. I think that's showing they're trying to be a little bit more disciplined. But they also, before they were public, had higher salaries, and so um, maybe not the best. Uh, doesn't doesn't put them in the best light, I guess. Sixty two percent public ownership, so very low institutional ownership um, compared to a lot of the companies that we look at. Uh, they which which I guess goes to show is is one of the reasons for all the volatility in the stock as as uh, we've been talking about like this this stock is crazy volatile it's been up it's been down it's been up and down back again so it's it's pretty insane what if you look at the stock chart and part of that like I said is due to higher public ownership um, a couple final notes uh, Andre Iguodala the NBA player is on the board um, he's been active in kind of the startup scene and some some tech stuff recently. So they got him on the board. Um, I don't know if that means anything one way or the other, but he's on the board. No, that's, it's a game changer. Um, <laughs> this company, it's, it's, it's a sure thing now. 
And then the last thing I'll say um, is there is a little bit of controversy surrounding this company just about it being French founders potentially exploiting Africa and taking advantage of this country. Um, Early on, they were, and I think they still are, outsourcing a lot of the um, web development jobs and, and coding jobs and programming jobs to Portugal. Um, and one of the founders said, had a comment that was, is now kind of infamous, basically saying that Africa didn't have enough developer talent to use African uh, developers, which a lot of people were unhappy with. Um, you know, I think there is, it, it's tough to say exactly, like it's hard to build, like Africa is just a different place in the Western world right now. And so it's tough to build a company there. And they've tried to do, I think, a decent job of getting um, African heads of um, their specific regional regions. Um, regions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so it, it's it's tough to say, but that's something you're going to want to get comfortable with is, is kind of exactly how this structure is set up and whether you trust this foreign company really winning in Africa or whether it's going to be a, a truly more of an African company winning in Africa. Yeah, that's that makes sense. And there is going to be, it's going to be a long journey, whatever it is to get out there. And then you're right that um, the history of French like uh, colonies in Africa in this light, it might not look that great. Yeah. Although, you know, that could just be some some story. I don't really know much about it, but yeah, that definitely makes sense. I'll, I'll hit valuation. Well, hold on um, one sec. I was, go ahead, Ryan. I would just add that uh, another point I, I think you had down there was the related party transaction. I believe there's uh, a group that's sort of affiliated with it, uh, MTN Group. Um, and they own a huge chunk, right? I think they're like the largest shareholder of uh, Jumia. Um, but uh, some, something of that sort. And so there is something to just like look at there and see sort of who's coordinated in it. And then also Andre Godala, he's on the board, but he's also on the compensation committee and another committee as well. So it, it's easy to say like, oh, that doesn't matter, but he is uh, involved. So if you think he might be a pushover in compensation meetings or something like or that. Or not have the experience to, you know, since right. he's a basketball player, not a not the history of, you know, running a business, you know. Like, yeah, and it isn't to it isn't to like say he can't do it. It's just that sometimes there's uh, fancy financial footworking in some of the compensation agreements where maybe he doesn't have the experience to recognize that maybe uh, compensation for CEOs is higher than it should be or something like that, or maybe it's a generous package. Um, so I just think like, you know, that is actually to me a bit of a red flag or maybe a yellow flag, but uh, I'll let Brett hit valuation. Yeah, those are good points. Those are good points. All right. Yeah, valuation. Uh, and again, here, I'm going to go with the market cap on Coifin of about $3 billion when I record it again. You know, the stock can go up 5 or 6% or down 5 or 6% a day. So really do your own research on the valuation. But I'm looking at the income statement, and I think the shares outstanding are a lot higher than what Coifin or StockRow have. And they also raised $340 million in March that will further dilute shareholders. So I believe the market cap is higher, but I'm going to go for that for now because either way, it's an expensive stock. So we got ticker of JMIA, price to sales of 17.8, price to gross profit of 26.7. So since they're really just a third-party platform, um, they have pretty high gross profit, but their price to contribution profit, which I'm kind of defining here as gross profit minus fulfillment expenses, which I think is a good number to use for evaluating an e-commerce company, that is over 100. So quite expensive 
Um, this is still almost a startup in my eyes. And to be honest, I think they could have been too early going to the public markets. Um, they seem really, really early in their business life cycle. Well, it looks like they might have needed the public markets. Um, to, for the money, I guess for the money, that could be an advantage, yeah. To raise cash. Uh, I'll, I'll dive into the earnings. They had $140 million in revenue in 2020. That's actually down 13% year over year. But as we mentioned, they moved out of uh, three markets and they also peeled back um, some of the more unprofitable items. Um, yeah, first party selling, yeah. Right. So uh, that's sort of, so the gross profit actually increased 22%. So I would pay more attention to that. Um, but the gross margin, as Brett mentioned, is reported at 66%. But uh, fulfillment expenses is sort of categorized as an operating expense. Um, they might have had to do that, but you should pretty much include that as a cost of goods sold. Because whether it's employees at a warehouse or people driving to and from to deliver packages and stuff like that, that's uh, that's a that's very much a variable expense. Um, uh, there might be some elements to that that are fixed, but it's it's going to grow as orders grow. Um, and then uh, the income statement had a lot of adjustments. So I, I kind of had to scroll to the bottom to find the comprehensive loss, but for the period, it was $162 million. So obviously that's more than generating in revenue, um, but it did improve sequentially or year over year. Uh, something else I'd mentioned, they report 6.8 million annual active customers. I, I think that is the highest of any e-commerce company in Africa. Uh, it's 12% more than a year ago, but annual active customers, in my opinion, doesn't really tell me much. So it's as long as a person made one transaction on the platform over the preceding 12 months. Yeah. So that, that just feels like it could be manipulated. Um, if you just pour a bunch of marketing expense, like we'll give you $5 to make a transaction or whatever. Um, it's just easy to sort of boost those numbers, I would say, because you don't have to get them to be super active. I wish they'd give more of like a monthly number or something where it shows sort of recurring nature. Or uh, ARPU or something around how many transactions people are doing, stuff like that. Ian, I think you had something. Um, if not, no. All right. Ryan, I mean, sorry. Keep going. Order, orders did go up, which is good. Uh, it was kind of in tandem with that. Uh, but 90% of the items sold on the platform were by third-party sellers. That's a little more validating because some of the stuff we've talked about here is a little concerning. But when you have other uh, members selling on the platform, it shows that there are buyers and they're not just wasting yeah. their time being on the platform. Yeah, it is like Amazon FBA in that sense. Um, all right. Ian, do you want to hit balance sheet before to, to wrap up the first half here? Yep. Quick look at the balance sheet. They've got $365 million in cash and equivalents. Um, raised more cash recently, though. I think they closed on it in March at, at a uh, market price transaction for um, getting about $700 million or a total of $700 million on the balance sheet now. They're reporting next week, so we'll get a chance to see exactly where those numbers came in. But somewhere around $700 million in cash is what I'm expecting. For reference, they burned a little bit over $100 million last year. So they've got a run rate. If they continue with that run rate, even burning $100 million a year, they've got about seven years of cash, which is a pretty healthy amount of cash, I think. Um, not any debt except for operating leases. So that is one thing to, as a, as a good positive for Jumia is that in a, in a company like this that's losing a lot of money, um, it's good to see not any debt because that can become a pretty big burden for the company um, moving forward. So they were able to uh, raise raise money at pretty high equity prices. I think they actually got the money raised at about thirty eight ninety a share. And for reference, uh, Jumia today is around um, 
uh let's see here sorry i just had this like 30 ish or something yeah it's like 27 dollars today and so you know they were able to raise it at a pretty good price um which is good for shareholders probably and um they're going to be able to get uh you know they've got a fairly solid balance sheet honestly and they don't have any any sort of um inventory really to speak of just a little bit of inventory as ryan mentioned almost all the sales are third-party sellers so pretty clean balance sheet um just the big thing is heavy dilution yeah and i would also add that uh like they have sort of an interesting history with citron research so citron research published like a short report the stock tanked like 40 percent in the next two days at following it and then like after like a year or something jumia or uh, Citron bought the stock and said it's like a ger- generational buying opportunity, which I thought was interesting. Um, but oh, they're kind of they're a little uh, performative, I, I think is the right word. So take <laughs> yeah. that with a grain of salt. The, yeah, the reason I bring it up is because they mentioned there's sort of uh, there is they have some ties with Alibaba and they also have ties with SoftBank, and so there is the chance that they get sort of an influx of capital from either one of those. Uh, institutions, um, which maybe means they don't have to tap into the equity markets as much. Uh, obviously that's kind of speculative, but yeah. All right. Well, that's going to wrap up the first half of the show. I think one note, uh, Ian mentioned they burned a hundred million dollars in cash and that's less than Ryan's net loss number of like 140 million. And I think Ian was referring to the operating cash flow number. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if you thought those two numbers were different, you know, that's the clarification. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is... Red color, red color, where are you? (sighs) All blocked, thanks to advanced security. Included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. Welcome back. Next up, we're going to get quick product experience. I'm assuming none of us have any, so we can kind of skip this one, right? No, which I guess that is, uh, that's probably like my biggest hesitation as someone who isn't an investor is that I have no idea what the product is like. Uh, And I don't know. I'm not in Africa, so I don't know, like, do people actually use it or is it kind of just like, they're reporting the numbers they want shareholders to see, that kind of thing. Yeah. Ian, I'm assuming no either. Yeah. Not really any direct products experience, just some of that, those things you hear, anecdotal things. I spent um, a couple of weeks in Africa two years ago and in a uh, country that they don't serve. Um, But I I will say this, there's an interesting um, dynamic in Africa where it seems like it's starting to get more onto you know, you're getting more internet access and more access to like more modern financial tools. And so like, there's a lot of stations for like remittance payments um, where you could like send money to people through like their telephone number basically. Um, And there's just all these booths like on the side of the road, there's like, they were everywhere. And so there seems to be a need for um, some more, like I said, some kind of more modern financial tools um, for things like that but uh, not a whole lot of direct experience with Jumia. Yeah, the most promising part of the business seems to be Jumia Pay, which I'm looking and it looks like your future growth opportunities will probably hit on that later. But before we get to that, Ian, do you want to talk about your competitive advantage? Yep. So I think as we've talked about with a lot of these companies recently, there's there's not some clear 
big moats that protect them from other things from other competitors. But one thing that I will say is they have sort of a first mover advantage. They're part of this first group of companies to really enter these markets. And if they can um, take advantage of that and become the standard, that becomes a big boon to them. And also what it's given them is um, access to public markets where they can raise money. And like I said, they just raised over $300 million um, at a fairly at least compared to now, a fairly attractive valuation. And so that gives them a, an advantage over competitors, just being able to raise that type of money kind of at the drop of a hat um, that, and, and access to U.S. equity markets too that, that some of their competitors don't have. Yeah, access to U.S. equity markets and European as well has got to be important for them. Um, Ryan, do you want to hit yours? Yeah, and they touched on this briefly in their 20F or whatever, which is kind of like the focus thing. Like, so you talk about Amazon companies like that, even if they moved in there, it's not their central market. And the other thing is since it's like their main focus and they are sort of, as Ian mentioned, first mover, they've kind of earned the scars from it. And they hopefully have learned like the difficulties and where stuff doesn't work. And they're kind of eliminating it. Like, all right, we weren't able to operate in Rwanda. Like we're peeling it back. We're moving out of that market. Like, maybe they've learned lessons that other people are going to have to go through now and they can kind of figure that out. Um, they, at least they have survived and the lessons are in the past. Yeah, that all makes sense. Um, all right, I'll hit mine. I mean, I have none currently, like Ian said, there's nothing it's going to be in the future. It might take 10 years to build any sort of competitive advantage, but if they can build up their logistics network, this comes back to the type, the amount of money they have on their balance sheet if they can get it to work and it's going to be really tough in some of these economies that are, you know, I mean, even Amazon in a more established place has to send billions of dollars. Um, if they can get those scale economics out there, like a lot of other e-commerce platforms we talk about, like JD.com, um, coupon, Amazon. I mean, there's, there's, you know, it's, it's an easy playbook to follow, but you do have to execute on it and it does take a lot of money. Um, and it could take a decade to build out, but that's something that, I think investors need to watch out for. You'd probably want to look out at like something like fulfillment expense as a percentage of revenue. Um, that could be something that you watch out for. I don't know, some sort of metric to see if they're getting any efficiencies with the logistics network. Yeah, it does feel like, it just feels like there are sort of a lack of efficiencies in, I mean, it's hard to have any efficiencies if there isn't sort of an efficient infrastructure, but that's just, I think, the risk uh, that investors are kind of grappling with. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right, Ian, do you want to hit your future growth opportunity? Yep, I'll dive right into that. So my future growth opportunity is Jumia Pay, which, as I mentioned, I think there's a big opportunity for a company to come in and build the financial infrastructure, especially for consumer um, whether it's peer-to-peer -peer payments, whether it's e-commerce payments, all sorts of stuff, as we've seen with things like PayPal and Square in the United States, um, Mercado Pago in South America. Mm -hmm. There's just, I, I think there's a big um, opportunity here in Africa. And Jumia Pay grew 30% year over year. Um, it also now makes up 33% of Jumia's transactions um, on the e-commerce site are made are paid through Jumia Pay, and so they're starting to get a larger share of their their own transactions. Um, and I think that just provides a little bit of a um, a growth opportunity there. That if they can really maximize that and get that closer to 60, 70, 80, even 90 percent of their transactions being paid through Jumia Pay, that's a lot of um, 
pretty natural growth that's available for them. And so even if it doesn't expand to all sorts of other parts of the market, just really monetizing their own service through Jumia Pay, um, they're capitalizing on their own service, I think will be a big thing. And it just starts to solve some of the problems of doing business in Africa. Um, that we've kind of identified here is it's just, it's, it's still an up and coming economy for most, like talking about Africa as a whole is actually kind of a hard thing. All these countries are so different. Um, yeah. A lot of them are know, different. Uh, the, there are different stages. Yeah. There are different yeah. GDPs. Some of them are um, much more similar to Western countries than others. Um, and some of them have, uh, they all have different types of risks and stuff associated with them. But that being said, there's just a, there's a general trend through Africa um, that it's been difficult to do business historically, and it's starting to get a little bit better. And I think Jumia Pay just helps further that along. And so if they can continue to capture a good chunk of that market, um, I think they've got some great tailwinds. Yeah. I'm not sure how hard this will be, but they do mention that they're trying to build out a, not a personal, like a consumer app. It could be personal finance. It could be more like Venmo. Uh, they mentioned they're doing that, but it isn't launched yet. And I do think there's a potential that that could go, you know, really get them that user growth going for Jamia Pay because it is huge just for the efficiencies as well. Getting people off cash and onto these digital payments will really help uh, with their long-term margins. But Ryan, uh, what do you got for your future growth opportunity? Uh, I'll make mine quick. So I, I put here moving solely into Nigeria, uh, maybe uh the West Africa sort of demographic that they have, maybe not just Nigeria specifically, but you mean geography, not demographic. geography. Yeah. And yeah. the, uh, they've got Nigeria has 200 million plus people. And from what I hear, it's one of the more tech savvy, uh, African countries. I know John Collison, the founder of Stripe, or maybe it's Patrick Collison. Um, they're very bullish. I mean, you're starting to see a lot of tech entrepreneurs kind of talk about the space. Um, there is risk with Boko Haram. Uh, they have, it's like a terrorist organization that has apparently occupied parts of Northern Nigeria. Um, and it sort of presents some economic risk. And they actually mentioned that in their annual report. But I just think it'd be better for them to go at this kind of like the way we saw Coupon, where they really dominate market share in a specific area and then try to repeat it elsewhere as opposed to just, I mean, going after 11 countries at once that all have their own differences feels like a much tougher logistical problem. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I'll talk about that with my lowlights as well about the, the geography thing. But yeah, when you read the risk factors on the 20F and it talks about like legal systems in the countries they operate in, and it talks about terrorist organizations in the countries they operate in. I mean, you know, like as being at real risk to the business, uh, it's kind of tough. To, it's a tough pill to swallow for sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I'll hit mine. It's uh, Jumia Logistics. I talked about this already, but they're kind of going the JD.com route and they have to, um, you know, build out their own because there's no UPS or FedEx operating in the country or U.S. Postal Service or whatever we have in, uh, you know, a lot of the Western markets. So, they're not only using it for themselves, but they're going to outsource the logistics to third-party merchants uh, and you know anyone, really. Um, at the end of 2020, they only had around 500,000 square feet of fulfillment space, which probably will need to like 10x as they go about their ambitious strategy. I, I can't remember what coupon had, but it was like 25 million, I think. Um, but all the cash they raised should help with this. The, but again, I, I think they're going to have to raise even more cash because to build out all these things, 
I mean, we saw with Coupon, that's the one on the top of my mind because we just covered it with Brad, but what are they spending on CapEx? Like $500 million a year? Um, Jumia is probably going to have to do something similar if they're really going to execute on this thing and get to the necessary returns on invested capital. I mean, they have to, it seems like they're going to have to invest so much money, but they can you know, like it's something they have to do. And if they can succeed, it really builds out that moat over time. Um, what, what are your guys' thoughts on like the logistics stuff, how much money they're going to have to spend, stuff like that? Ian, do you want to go? Or Yeah, I think you're right about that, that it's going to be a big, it's a big capital expenditures coming up, right? Just to actually build out the logistics network is a monumental effort because not only do you have to build out um, factories, but in some cases you're really having to build out the infrastructure in some of these places um, to support big facilities like they want to build. So, um, that, that's one interest. That's one kind of interesting piece of it. it. It's also interesting. I don't know that I have a good feel on this, but what the cost of some of this will be compared to some other, um, e-commerce players around the world, like you mentioned, coupon or, um, Mercado Libre, or even something like Amazon in the U S like, I, I expect that in some ways the labor costs are probably going to be lower. Um, yeah. and the cost of land and things like that. But then in other respects, I expect that some of the costs are probably going to be higher just due to um, not having the, the the right materials or the infrastructure there. Like it's hard to actually get the materials there to build stuff. And so it, it's just, it kind of goes to show, I think, just the difficulty of working in some of these countries is that there's there hasn't been a whole lot of investment into these countries for things other than um, mining particularly. And so trying to build something out like this, they really are kind of in the wild you know, for lack of a better term, the wild west. Yeah. Ryan, you have anything on that or no, I, I don't know the area enough to give any sort of logistical take. It's just, it's, it's something that there's a lot of unknowns for me uh, with Africa because I've never studied any business out there. So. All right. Uh, highlights and lowlights then Ian, what do you have for highlights? It starts for me with just the huge market. Um, even if it's just in the 12 countries they're currently in and not the entire continent, it is just a, it's an enormous, uh, potentially enormous market. Um, I also think that uh, the, the equity offering they did recently is one of the few times when we actually see an equity offering that probably got priced at the right, at the right time. Yeah. Um, smart, smart move, smart move. Got a really strengthened the balance sheet. It was in good shape anyways, but now they've got a ton of cash to be able to pursue some of these objectives we've talked about. Um, and I also I really like that they have consolidated in fewer markets. As Ryan mentioned, I, I wouldn't be a, I wouldn't mind them consolidating even further. Um, low lights. I, I'm not in love with the management team. I don't hate them either. I kind of I think there's a lot of people out there who hate the management team, and I I fall somewhere in the middle probably. Um, but there's just so, so much uncertainty with this. Like it's that's that's the hard thing. It's a huge market. So much uncertainty. Kind of don't know exactly what to do with it. And in the meantime, it's very, very unprofitable. And so <laughs> it, it's, yeah. uh, as you've mentioned multiple times, Brett, I think this is a years long, um, a years long investment horizon. Yeah. There's a, that's a tough cocktail to deal with. Um, Ryan, what about you? Uh, so there is sort of the opportunity you see in Africa. That's kind of the highlight. I mean, that's what they tout the most on their annual report. Um, it's, I think that's sort of the investment thesis for just about anyone at this point is the, how big the opportunity is. Um, and then Citron also made the case in their generational buying opportunity report that like 
C Limited, Alibaba, and Mercado Libre were a bit early also, but it, it can pay to wait with those. Although I would just say they're a little, those environments were a little more tech savvy, um, I think. Uh, so yeah, that, Mercado Libre is probably the most similar, but yeah, especially C Limited or Alibaba, you know, Singapore, China. Yeah. And then my low lights, uh, there was the lawsuit settlement uh, because they didn't have appropriate disclosures or they um, withheld certain information that was important. And so shareholders sued them and they settled. Um, and then there was the material weakness that they reported. That's obvious. Those are like the obvious red flags. And then the company also being headquartered uh, and pretty much controlled in Europe. So all the developers and stuff, they're all in Portugal or Germany, but then the operations are really in Africa. It feels like that disconnect or uh, just the separate locations can kind of lead to a lot of miscommunication. And maybe also uh, there's just less, uh, I don't think it runs as smoothly when you have to like, all right, here's what the problems are. Let's send it back to Portugal and have them sort of update it. They can't communicate all the time. as hey, well, to be fair, they have Zoom. We're not sending letters here, but I, I get what you mean. I know, but it's just, uh, it's not like you're saying, here's my problem instantly. You got to like make sure you're on the same schedule and stuff like that. I don't know. It's just uh, the dislocation. There's something that feels weird about that. Yeah, it seems, uh, it feels like ideally they'd have their headquarters in Lagos or something like that. That's the the capital of Nigeria. Doesn't it just seem just weird to say like, all right, our labor is going to be in Africa, but we're going to run the company from Europe. Yeah, I get an HQ down in Lagos or something or another country, Nairobi or whatever. Yeah, I don't know. No, I would agree with that. I, yeah. I would also add low light is there are a lot of people coming in uh, that want to uh, sort of help Africa become more tech savvy. Yeah, I think uh, Facebook's done it. Um, yeah, Facebook and Google are laying a lot of fiber. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then you have Jack Dorsey kind of going over there. I don't know what he's doing. It might be sort of like, uh, you know, but, uh, it, those people are armed with capital, much more capital than what Jumia has. So it's, there will be competition, um, and very rich competition as well. Yeah. I guess I'm thinking about this now. Facebook marketplace could be a big competitor. Yeah, just thinking about that now. I think that's someone that's a company like you really should track. I'm not sure how much info they're going to give out on the African part of the Facebook marketplace, but yeah. Um, all right, I'll hit my highlights again, just like you guys. Great mission that you know they're going after just a giant opportunity. They could become a backbone of a lot of these economies in Africa. Um, they could be someone that's really driving GDP growth. And overall, the big highlight would be if they can execute on Jumia Pay and logistics. I think those are the keys to being successful with this company. Um, they would really help with efficiencies. I mean, Jumia Pay is probably, if they can't execute on Jumia Pay, this thing, I, I, it's just hard to see this thing working. Um, low lights, though, a lot. Uh, material weakness, sued by shareholders. Um, there's known fraud among some of their sellers and agents. Uh, cash payments, again, lead to giant inefficiencies currently. And, you know, the potential for fraud, like from those agents. Uh, $28 million in contribution profit last year is nowhere near enough to reinvest into the business for growth. I mean, that's just a tiny number. Um, huge amount of shared dilution, like we mentioned before. Lack of focus, I think, on the core offering. Like, why are you doing food delivery right now? I mean, that's just easy to add on later. Like, that's something you do five years from now. 
Um, and then, like Ryan said, lack of focus on the economies. I don't think going after all of Africa is ideal at all. Why they didn't focus on like one country at a time is just really, I think, a mistake that could be detrimental to this business. And they expanded really fast. I think they at first they were just in Nigeria and Pakistan, and then they were within like six countries in two years. You said you said Pakistan. I don't think that would be correct. Uh, well, I got that from Wikipedia, so we'll see. <laughs> so maybe you're right. Uh, but yeah, it just. Uh, I mean, it said Nigeria and Pakistan, but Pakistan. Oh, that's that's weird. I didn't know they were in the Middle East. Maybe like that's said, wrong. It could be wrong. That, that came from that came from Wikipedia. So okay. uh, maybe that's wrong. But the uh, it, it just the expansion happened very very quick. Like they were, yeah, almost like they knew they were going to have to sell it to shareholders as like a play on all of Africa instead of just a play on Nigeria. Yeah, I think that that, that yeah. makes a lot of sense. Um, Ian, you have anything else on that? Uh, I'll go ahead and dive into more or less interested. I think yeah. um, it ties into what I want to say there. So for me, it all comes down to this is a huge, huge market opportunity, even even if it's just going after some of these, um, just a select few of these com- uh, countries instead of the whole continent of Africa. But there is, as we've discussed today. There's just so much uncertainty surrounding it about, can they actually do this? And I think they've made missteps as you've been pointing out. I think they went into too many geographic markets and I think they went into too many, like you said, like the food delivery thing, like, why are you getting into food delivery right now? That just doesn't seem to be um, something they should be pursuing. But then you sit back and you think about it and you think, okay, if there's going to be a dominant e-commerce player in Africa, what's the market cap going to be? And it's going to be a heck of a lot higher than $3 billion um, if that were to happen. Right. And maybe that's five or 10 years away. And that's the problem is that if it's going to take Jumia, you know, five to 10 years to really become a dominant player, um, there's just such an, (laughs) I would be fearful that, you know, Amazon jumps in in a big way, or even someone like Mercado Libre or Sia Limited jumps in, you know, they've, they've shown some aptitude to be expanding into new markets and particularly Sia Limited. Um, I just think there's, it is a huge opportunity and $3 billion for the dominant e-commerce player in, in Africa seems like a steal, but there's, there's so much uncertainty and so much competition that it, it's, it really makes it hard to see exactly how they succeed here. It's not. Yeah. I would say dominant success. is less than 200 million in revenue currently. So, right. That's what I mean. A potentially yeah. dominant yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> e-commerce player. They're not a dominant player right now. It's, it's, it's a, it's a bet on potential if you're going to invest in this stock. Yeah. R- Ryan, what do you think? I'm less interested just because it's not really my cup of tea, but there is a case to be made where uh, if the best case scenario plays out, or if you kind of throw on some rose-colored glasses, this is a much bigger company than $3 billion for sure. Um, I, I don't think it's a certain bet. I think it's kind of like a call option that just bought itself two more years of liquidity and runway, maybe three more years. I guess they have $700 million now in cash. Um, and they're peeling back spending, which is, I guess, a good sign. Um, I would much... I, I, I do like that they've started the process of moving out of markets, uh, moving away from unprofitable goods, that first party stuff. Yeah, It's hard to do as a young company and they chose to do it. Uh, and I think that was the right choice. So I, 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 there's some highlights. I know we kind of seem critical, but I'm, I'm personally less interested. 
Yeah. And I think one thing to clear about food delivery, I think they've been in it for like at least five years. Um, so it's not like they just started it, but again, I think that just shows the lack of focus. They're like, all right, we're going to do everything that everyone's doing in the Western markets. All right. Well, shit, we just burned $200 million. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely less interested. And if you are interested in this company, if you like it, I mean, we're again, we're going to say we're not financial advisors, but man, just maybe nibble and just wait this thing out. You know what I mean? It's not a sure bet at all. There's a risk of permanent loss of capital here. Uh, so yeah, I'm definitely less interested, but this is a company I wouldn't mind tracking, kind of maybe taking a peek at what they're doing once a year. And you could see a scenario where this is a better investment risk reward wise, like 10 years from now, if they execute and start generating cash. Yeah, uh, agreed. It's just uh, kind of, there's like a big question mark looming over it, uh, which is just Africa. Like, I don't necessarily know what all's going on. And there is all that... Uh, there's so much macro uncertainty, like the legal environment and the terrorist organizations in one of their prominent countries. Yeah. And one of the yeah. risk factors said like, cause Nigeria is, I, I think Nigeria is a big market for them and West Africa specifically makes up the majority of their revenue or payment volume. And they said, uh, if Boko Haram starts to move into South, uh, Southern Nigeria, we could be, uh, we could see some serious problems. Yeah, no, that, that'd be tough for sure. All right, I, that, that's going to do it. Um, Ian, you have anything else to close things out? I don't think so, but we need your stock of the week. All right, know. right. Okay, uh, we're going to do, and this was a recommendation. Usually when we get recommendations, we say we're going to do them and then, so, sorry, well, we don't do them, but the, the, we're going to do Embracer Gaming. Uh, I think someone recommended to that uh, to us. So exciting one. It's like a Swedish decentralized gaming studio. Hmm. will be interesting to check out. I think they've been a great performer. Um, so yeah, I'm excited for that one. Um, all right, let's close things out. Thank you all for listening. Remember, we are not financial advisors. Anything we say on this show is not formal advice or recommendation. Ryan and I are general partners at Arch Capital. Arch Capital clients may hold securities discussed in this podcast. Again, thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week.